Please turn with me to Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. This is one of our passages we go to in our Presbyterian and Reformed circles when we discuss baptism and the importance of baptism. So Colossians chapter 2, beginning with verse 11. Uh, These are the words of the Lord. In him also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. The word of the Lord. So as I mentioned, I wanted to preach this Sunday on baptism and on the sacraments and then in a couple weeks on the Lord's Supper, uh, not only because it's Reformation Sunday, but because it's a very important topic uh, in our Christian circles. And before we look at baptism, I just want to explain what a sacrament is because we use these fancy words in the church uh, throughout our, our Christian circles. And if you're visiting with us and you've never been to a church, you're probably wondering, what in the world is a sacrament? And uh, what does Seth mean when he says that word? Well, the word sacrament, it comes from the word sacramentum, which translates from the Greek word mysterion, mysterion. When you hear the word mysterion, you probably think of the word mystery. And when we think of the word mystery in our American context, we think of something that is mysterious, that is eerie, uh, perhaps even like an unsolved mystery, you know, the show, or a mystery of a murder, for example. That's not what the Greek word means. The Greek word for mysterion, which points to the word sacrament, it refers to a mystery that was once hidden that is now revealed. In other words, a, a mystery in this context, a sacrament, it reveals something. And when I think about something that was once hidden, that, was once re- or that is now revealed, I think about all the Old Testament images that are pointing to Christ, and yet he now reveals those images that were pointing to him, those symbols. And so a sacrament is something that reveals something of great significance. That's what the word means. Uh, Augustine, he said this, he said, a sacrament is a visible sign of an invisible grace. Uh, He describes sacraments as God's word that is made visible. These sacraments, they they help us to see something uh, without spoken words. They are symbols or images that convey and represent something of great significance. And so that's why when we think about baptism, we think about the Lord's Supper, you can actually see the waters of baptism, and they reveal and mean something, You can also see and taste and touch the elements of the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine that you drink. Uh, It really kind of involves your five senses, but it doesn't communicate by words. It communicates by images. So again, it's a visible sign that you can see the water or the bread and the the juice, and it, it reveals and represents something that's invisible, an invisible grace. They are visible words that symbolize what the gospel is. And sacraments teach us biblical truths, not by words, but by actions. And so again, that's what we need to think about that a sacrament is. It's something that reveals something of great significance. A sacrament is also an ordinance or a law. And when you think of a law or an ordinance, I'll just make it simple. Think about when you're driving down the road and you see 35 miles per hour. 
what does that sign mean? It's a law that's given from our authorities that's saying you need to stay within the speed limit. 35 or less, many of you probably don't follow that at times, but 35 or less is the sign that points to something of great significance. It's an ordinance. It's a law. Uh, Throughout the Bible, we see ordinances and laws that our lawgiver gives. And there's only one lawgiver, and who's that lawgiver? But God, the Lord. And he gives us certain ordinances to follow that he instituted. In the Old Testament, He gave us two specific ordinances that his people were to observe and were to follow. Those two specific things that that God's people were to do was circumcision, the males in the household, and also the Passover meal. Those were the two ordinances that, that God made that his people were to observe that would be considered a sacrament. That would be unspoken, but they would be a visible thing that would point to something of great significance. When you get to the New Testament, you now have two new sacraments, and those sacraments are baptism and the Lord's Supper. And baptism, it reflects upon circumcision in the Old Testament, which we'll talk about today. And we have the Lord's Supper, which reflects and represents the Passover meal from the Old Testament that we had many years ago, which we'll talk about in a few weeks. And so that's what an, a sacrament is. It's, it's something that points to something of great significance, and it's an ordinance that God wants his people to do. And after all, when you get to the New Testament, Jesus himself uh, observed these two sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and he tells us uh, to do so in remembrance of him. So it is really a direct order, a command that, that, that Jesus gave us, and it's something that he observed. And so as a result, it is of great significance. What, what I like to say, though, is we, we all in this room have come from different backgrounds. And when we talk about these things, uh, it's easy for us to get in a lot of debate and, and hot discussion on what Scripture says and, and how we are to observe these sacraments and what they really mean. Uh, what I want to emphasize first and foremost is that baptism and Lord's Supper, although they are very important to discuss, they are not essential to our salvation. Meaning that you can actually go through your life without being baptized and still get to heaven. Now, you might look at me and say, wait, what do you mean by that? Well, think about the prisoner on the cross. Now, at the end of his life, he looked at Jesus at, at, at his death, and, and he said, I believe. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. I don't believe that that prisoner on the cross was baptized right before he died. It doesn't say it in the scriptures, Uh, So we are to to, to take from that that the thief on the cross is with us or will be with us in heaven, and yet he wasn't baptized. The essential thing that gets us into heaven is not baptism, it's not the Lord's Supper, it's Jesus. And it's our belief and our faith in Jesus. And so contrary to what some uh, groups out there say, some will say you have to be baptized in order to be in heaven, or you have to observe the Lord's Supper in order to be a true Christian, I would say that's not necessarily the case because the only way to get to heaven is by repenting of our sins and by trusting in Jesus. After all, in Romans 10, it tells us that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our hearts that he was raised again from the dead, then we will be saved. And so that's what gets us into heaven. An essential doctrine of the faith is grace alone by faith alone. 
is the Trinity, is the word of God as it being the inspired word of God. These are beliefs that we should die for as Christians. When it comes to baptism and the Lord's Supper, there's a little room to agree to disagree. However, I would say, even though baptism and the Lord's Supper are not essential doctrines of the faith, of the faith they are necessary. They are significant. They are indeed important for us, to deter, for us to discuss. In fact, when you study church history, you see that people have even died over this issue. People have disagreed and formed different denominations over this issue. So it is a really important thing for us to discuss. In fact, it's, important thing, it's an important thing for us to observe and to do. It's as if I were to ask you the question, you know, do you have to go to church in order to be a Christian? No. Uh, the answer is Jesus. You believe in Jesus in order to be a Christian. However, do you need to go to the church? Do you have to go to church in order to obey? Yes. Yes. Yeah, you need to go to church as a, as a believer because God wants us to go to church. Uh, he asks us to go to church. That helps us grow in our faith. And so it is necessary and important for us to do, to go to church. In the same way, baptism and the Lord's Supper are, are, are things that are significant for us and important for us to observe. And so again, let's go back to Colossians chapter 2 and look at this passage because as we dive deep, we're going to see the difference of how I described it in that baptism is important. And at the same time, what's, what's ultimately important is our, our, our love for Jesus. So Colossians 2, in him also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you are also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Okay, there's a lot to unpack here in just a few minutes that we have. But what Paul is really getting at here is he's talking about the most important thing for us as believers is to be united with Christ. These verses talk about our spiritual union with Christ and how we are united with him. We are united with him. When we confess our sins and believe in him, the Holy Spirit changes our hearts. Uh, he unites with us, and so the Spirit of Christ lives within us. And so what, what Paul is getting at here is the main thing we need to think about as believers is being united with Christ. Are you with Christ or are you not? Does he know you or does he not? That's the main essential thing we have to understand when, we come, when it comes to our Christian faith. And that's what, what he's getting at here. So he uses these words like, like spiritual circumcision essentially is what he's getting at. And what he's getting at here is at the end of the day, what matters most is if we've been changed from within. And when you go through the Old Testament, you will see a lot of these references that, that, you, that Moses gave and he talked about. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, Moses said, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. When you get to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, it says, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And then in Jeremiah chapter 4, we read these words. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. All three of these passages are emphasizing the importance of having our heart changed. 
of having our heart literally cut open for Christ and saying, Lord, I'm cut to the heart knowing that I am now yours. I am changed by you. So the language of Colossians 2, 11, and 12, the main point is that as believers, we are united with Christ and we are to be circumcised by the heart. In other words, we are to be cut by the heart of conviction and of faith and of love. So the primary doctrine is, again, being united with Christ. But as Colossians 2, 11 through 12 discusses, it adds these secondary important doctrines, these words of circumcision and that of baptism that help bring it all together. So my job this morning is to help bring it all together for you so you can kind of understand what Colossians 2 really is talking about. So again, when you look at the Old Covenant, the Old Covenant in in the Old Testament, there was a sign for the believer a sign for a believer in his household to to do, to observe. It was a sacrament for them to observe and participate in to set them apart from the rest of the world. And that sign was circumcision. Circumcision was was really designed for, for God's people to be able to be set apart as a boundary marker, setting them apart from the rest of the world. And there's a great book that I would encourage all of you to get if you really want to learn more about baptism. And it's a pretty, a pretty new book called Covenantal Baptism by Jason Halopoulos. Jason and I are friends. He's in our denomination. But Covenantal Baptism, it's an outstanding book, a short read for those of you that don't like to read a lot. It's a short read. It gives a lot of questions and answers about baptism. But I do encourage you to read it. In this book, he says these words, the sign of circumcision was applied to the male organ of reproduction. This is not accidental. Adam brought sin into the world and all mankind descending from him sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. The sign of circumcision also signified God's covenant promise that he would send forth a Messiah, a redeemer, the seed of the woman, a child of Abraham, a descendant of David to be born into this world. God reminded sinners through their own personal corrupted flesh that even though mankind was fallen, He had promised to save his own through one who would be born. Every Jewish male bore this sign in the flesh as a continual reminder of God's covenantal promises that would come about through the seed of the woman. Holopolis went on to say that circumcision was really a symbolic death in which there was no hope in generations to come because you needed regeneration. The shedding of blood in which dealt most or must occur to pay for the sins. It was a symbolic lesson that the people of God needed a redeemer to be cut off from God and shed his blood so that we could be forgiven. So that's a lot there, but what Holopolis is saying here and what Colossians 2 is really pointing at is that in the Old Testament, God's people were asked by God for the men to be circumcised. And this was the adult men, and this was the eight-day-old male babies. In fact, in Genesis 17, 23, we read, on that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael and all those born in his household or bought with his money, every male in his household and circumcised them as God told him. Why do I bring all this up? Because it has everything to do with baptism today. It has everything to do with baptism because even though they're two different things, they point to the same thing. Circumcision was done in the Old Testament as a sign removing God's people from the rest of the world. 
adult men who became believers in the Lord, they were asked by God to be circumcised. Why? Because it symbolized not only their faith, but it also symbolized in a future Messiah who would come, who would be cut off from the Father, and he would ultimately bleed to death for our forgiveness and for, for our hope. And so circumcision was done to point to a future Messiah. Well, when you get to the New Testament, and this is what Colossians 2 is really getting at here. When you get to the New Testament, it goes on to say, in him you were also circumcised. And then in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, baptism means a whole lot of things, just as circumcision meant. But in reality, when you get to the New Testament, you begin to see a shift take place. You see a shift take place because God's people in the Old Testament were asked, the men were asked to be circumcised. You get to Jesus, and then you get to Acts 15, and in Acts 15, everything changes for the church as it is today. In Acts 15, there's this huge debate uh, between Jews and Gentiles. And the Jewish leaders were talking about themselves, and they were saying, well, we have all these new believers coming into the church, but they don't want to be circumcised. But the reality is, is they don't have to be. Why? Because Jesus has fulfilled circumcision. He's fulfilled it because he was cut off from the Father. He paid for our sins. He bled for our sins. And so we no longer have to observe circumcision. And so when the Gentiles came in in Acts chapter 15, there was this huge debate. And the Jewish leaders, they debated amongst themselves. And Paul essentially said, no, welcome the Gentile believers in. And when the Gentile believers came in, there was a new sign, a new mark that was, to be, that was to be done. And can you guess what that new sign, a new mark was? Baptism. And what's beautiful about it when you see the two things is, you know, I hate to be graphic, but Old Testament Passover meal, bloody. You know, you sacrifice a lamb. You think about circumcision, bloody. You get to the New Testament, and what happens? Baptism replaces circumcision, so it's bloodless. Also, the Lord's Supper. We don't, have to, we don't have to kill a lamb every time we observe the Lord's Supper. Why? Because Jesus is our Passover lamb. He's already dealt the payment for us. And so that's why these two sacraments have now replaced the old sacraments of the day. And so we're now in the new covenant. And as most of us here are Gentile believers, God asks us not to be circumcised. He asks us now to be baptized. And that's where we get at. And the beautiful reality is, is when you get into Galatians, and when you get into especially Galatians 3, you can see that now women are included in this in the sense of women need to be baptized. Young girls need to be baptized. And we'll get to that in just a moment about infant baptism. But the reality is, is that you see that the, the new covenant has replaced the old covenant, and there are new sacraments that are initiated into our covenant community. What I, what I like to emphasize is, is what John Calvin said, and he said, Christ accomplishes in us spiritual circumcision, not through means of that ancient sign which was enforced under Moses, but by baptism. 
Baptism, therefore, is a sign of the thing that is presented to us, which, while absent, was prefigured by circumcision. So again, circumcision and baptism, they signify one and the same thing. Baptism for the Christian is what circumcision was for the Jew. Both sacraments serve as signs of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Circumcision looking forward to Christ's death and baptism looking back to it. This is the language that Paul was getting at in Colossians 2 as he's describing the connection between circumcision and baptism because they essentially point to the same thing and they mean the same thing. So that's why we observe baptism today. But here's the thing I want to tell you, and I'm, I'm disappointed for you because in the next service, we're going to have four baptisms. We're going to be baptizing three new believers in Christ. We're also going to be baptizing an infant. Now, the last two baptisms have been in this service, so I don't feel as bad for you because they missed out the last two baptisms. Uh, But we're going to be observing uh, three believers' baptisms because in our church, we recognize both. We recognize that if you've never been baptized as an infant and you come to, to Christ's covenant and you've never been baptized as a new believer, we're going to baptize you. So we're baptizing three young believers today at the 11 o'clock hour. And why do we do that? We do it because, again, it points back to the old covenant when God asked Abraham and the adults to be circumcised in the same way he asks us today to be baptized. And so we recognize that believers need to be baptized. And what I love about baptism is that what it symbolizes It symbolizes the cleansing of our sin, the water. It cleanses us. And if you think about water, what does it do? It it helps remove the dirt. I don't know if you saw this this week in the news, but there was a man who was 94, and he hadn't showered in years. He was known as the world's dirtiest man alive, and he finally took his first shower. Could you imagine when the water hit him, what that would have looked like? I can't imagine. But the reality is, is what does water do for us? It cleans In the same way, whenever we observe a baptism, we think about how it cleanses us from our sins. It cleans us from our sins, right? In the sense of it's a symbol of what Jesus has done. The waters don't do it, but it's a symbol of what he's done for us. And so again, if you think about that, that's one one reason we, we baptize and one thing it symbolizes. It also symbolizes our union with Christ, that we are now entering into the covenant community of God's people. And so here's the thing I want you to remember. If you can have one takeaway from the sermon, it's this. Anytime from now on that you observe a baptism here or any other church you may go to, anytime, I don't want you to just think about the person being baptized. I want you to think about you. You might be wondering, well, what in the world are you talking about? What does that mean? Well, whenever a sacrament happens in the church, it should have an impact on your spiritual life. So here's what I want you to think about. I not only want you to think about the person who has a new life in Christ or, a, or an infant who has been given to, to the covenant community. I want you to think about your life and I want you to remember not only your baptism if you can remember it, but most importantly, I want you to remember what it symbolized for you. And that is, as the waters go on someone's head, or if you go to a Baptist church and you're dunked, as you see this take place, I want you to think about you. And I want you to think about, oh, wow. Yeah, the Lord has saved me from my sins. He's cleaned me from my dirt. That's how baptism should impact you. Most people I talk to, they don't think like that. 
They just think, oh, let's celebrate this person getting baptized. But in reality, it's just as important for you as it is for the person being baptized. Because you can reflect and look back upon your baptism and what it meant for you. That's the thing I want to emphasize for you and that why baptism is important and should strengthen your faith. That's what a sacrament does. It, it's an unspoken thing that reveals something of great significance. And the waters reveal to you great significance that you have been forgiven of your sins. So anytime you see that take place, remember that for your own life. I want to end by talking about infant baptism. Because infant baptism is a highly discussed topic. But I, I do want to remind you, if you're coming from a Baptist background, if you're coming from a non-denominational background that doesn't baptize babies, most denominations around the world and throughout history baptize babies. They do. I think in America and in the South, we, we get fixated on this is the way to do it. But the reality is, is when you study all of church history, you see that the predominant way of baptizing is infants and believers, new believers, most denominations do that. And also, the predominant way is by pouring and sprinkling and not by immersion, which is a whole other conversation. By the way, if, uh, if you would like to come to our, our new members class this coming Wednesday, I'm starting it, and I spend a whole hour and a half on baptism. So we get into a lot more information on it. And if you're already a member and you haven't been through the class uh, with me and you went through Jim Barnes, come. Come, and we'll go over all of the information about immersion, sprinkling, all that stuff if you'd like. You're welcome to come, even if you're a member. A member. But it's this Wednesday at 6 o'clock. But why do we baptize babies? Well, it's the same reason why we go back to Old Testament days. When you get back to Genesis 17, verse 12, God told Abraham, he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. So not only were adults circumcised, but infants, uh, infant boys were to be circumcised. We know that Isaac was circumcised before his confession of faith in Genesis 21. When you get to Genesis 17, 7, it describes God making a covenant promise with his people. And he said, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generation for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. In Genesis 17, 7, God is making a promise to Abraham that he will be their God and this will be for generations to come, their offspring and their children to come. Fast forward again to Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter uses very similar language that God used in Genesis 17 by saying, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. In Acts chapter 2, this is when you begin to see that shift taking place. Remember I said earlier where baptism replaced circumcision as the covenant sign. In Acts chapter 2, this, these words are emphasizing Genesis 17 by saying, this promise is for you and those who are far off, your children. Why do we baptize babies here? We don't believe this baby will become a Christian when they're baptized. No, that's impossible because the baby has to repent and believe of their sins. We baptize babies here because we believe a baby is now marked aside from the rest of the world in that they are entering into the covenant community. And this promise would be for not only adult parents, but also for the children and those who are far off. And so here's the thing I always like to say, and we're gonna do this in the next service. Whenever we baptize a baby, I ask you, the members of this church, to do everything you possibly can think about to help mom and dad raise this young boy or girl in the Lord. 
And that could mean a number of things. You pray for them regularly. You serve the nursery. You teach them in Sunday school. You ask mom and dad periodically, hey, how are you doing raising the next generation? How can I help you raise this covenant kid that we have set apart from the rest of the world with the hopes that one day they will come to faith in Christ? So the ownership is not just on the parents, it's on us. That's what a covenant community is. And as you go through the New Testament, and even as you go through the Old Testament, you will see this theme of a covenant community that God has for his people. We are to be different than the world. And one way that we're different is when we observe these sacraments, because they point to something of great significance. And so again, as we baptize our children, we are proclaiming God's promises on them with the hopes that one day they will come to faith in Jesus Christ. And by the way, they're going to have a lot of help and a lot of support that a, that a, that a non-churched kid would get. Think about the, the kids in our community that aren't in church, that don't get the word of God any. Think about those kids. It's gonna be hard for them to come to faith in Christ. Now, God can still do it, and he does it time and time and time again. But if you think about it in, this, in these terms, the reality is when we set our kids apart and proclaim the promises of them, of God, on them. We entrust them in the hands of the Lord, trusting that one day God will do his mighty work to them after all the discipleship and teaching and, and being prayed over that they will receive for many years to come. So why do we baptize infants? We baptize them because we believe the Bible tells us. We're not doing it because it's our opinion and we just think, ah, this sounds good. No, we look at scripture and there's many, more, many, many, many other scriptures we go to but again, uh, if you wanna learn more, come to my class Wednesday night, 6 to 7.30. We can discuss it further. And again, I'm, I'm here too to answer any questions. So the main point today I just want you to remember is whenever we observe a baptism, it points to something of great significance. It not only is an encouragement to the person being baptized and to their family if it's an infant, but it also should be an encouragement to your soul.